Welcome, everybody. I'm joined today um, in our, this is our latest EAU update, talk about prostate cancer with, uh, with our great friend Peter Albers today. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself quickly and just talk about a little bit about what you were doing at EAU this year? Yes, of course, um, Tom. My name is Peter Albers. I'm um, chief of the Department of Urology in Dusseldorf um, University and a double affiliation at the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg, uh, specializing on personalized prevention on prostate cancer. And um, by the way, I'm organizing the scientific meeting of the European Association of Urology, um, being the chair of the um, Scientific Congress Office of the EAU. Peter. So my first question to you, what's the most exciting thing in prostate cancer, prostate cancer particularly at the moment, with that early disease? Um, and what's, what's sort of driving the decision-making around that area? Yeah, my problem is I'm a little bit biased because I'm leading also this probate. Oh, don't worry. We're pretty biased too. So you <laughs> far away. Don't, don't worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm in connection to all those off guys that try to improve screening in prostate cancer. And this year, I think we have seen for the first time level one evidence of MRI helping in better identifying patients for screening in prostate cancer. Um, we, we have this problem, obviously, of PSA screening and um, the Stockholm 3 trial with his MRI part was published at the, this year's EAU and um, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, which shows that MRI really can help to identify aggressive cancers. Um, and not identifying cancers we do not want to detect. And uh, I think this was a tremendous um, uh, contribution to the field. So, Peter, can you walk us through that data a little bit for the audience who's not familiar? Yeah, it's quite easy. So um, what, we, what we expected to, to see is that MRI um, helped in, in more specifying risk, stratifying patient, um, uh, healthy people, healthy men, um, um, to be detected with significant prostate cancer. So the Stockholm um, group already has published a lot of um, screening and randomized trials in screening, and now they have this MRI trial, which is randomizing PSA against PSA and MRI. And uh, the goal was the detection rate of um, significant prostate cancers. And um, by then, also um, downsc downscaling the number of overdiagnosed cancers, which is Gleason 6, ISO 1 cancers. And they managed to randomize 2,200 people um, to either PSA alone versus PSA with MRI. And uh, what came out is that um, MRI really achieved um, a better prediction um, detection rate of significant cancers. Um, and 70% of, um, of, of Gleason 6 cancers were not detected, which is a major goal in preventing overdiagnosis. Um, Peter, what was the conclusion of that study? What do we do with those results? And what should the treating clinicians you know, today and tomorrow, does, do you have to do MRI scan now? Um, how does it help the patients? Do they live longer? Do they get different procedures because of it? Or is it more of a, you know, so how does that help that data help the people on the ground? It mainly helps to avoid unnecessary treatment, because if you have a PSA value elevated, um, mostly those guys are undergoing biopsy. And um, this then leads to the detection of insignificant cancers. So with the help of MRI, we can prevent um, diagnosing such people and 
preventing overtreatment because most of them with Gleason 6, let's say a 50-year-old guy has a Gleason 6 cancer. We, in our study, 80%, more than 80% undergo radical prostatectomy. Um, the, the only downside I see is that MRI uh, was used in this classical screening population of uh, 50 to 7-year-old. And uh, in our study, in, in the probase trial, we found that MRI in the younger, younger men is sometimes hard to read because of the multiple infections um, they have undergone. And so the MRI picture is not as clear as in older guys where you have the transition zone elevated. So um, we have to further work on, 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 on the MRI, but I think this is the really good signal to, to, to improve on screening at the moment, which is an opportunistic screening and causes a lot of trouble for, for men, um, which is unnecessary. Peter, are there... Are there groups in which maybe MRI is not applicable, for instance, like you say, a 52-year-old man where you might be nervous about surveillance or, or maybe not, or an older person who's not going to get intervention no matter what? I mean, are there extremes of age or other characteristics where the MRI wouldn't be helpful? Yes, of course. Um, in the elderly population where you really have to answer your question, is, this, is it useful to detect a, a, a low-volume cancer? Um, in, in those guys, I think um, the classical diagnostics of PSA and then biopsy just to exclude aggressive cancers is sufficient. And in the younger guys, we, we perform a study that starts with 45-year-old, and we have trouble to identify um, the ag aggressive cancers in, in the same quality like you're able to with 64, 65 or 70. So mm -hmm. this, I think you have to be a little bit cautious not to oversee cancers in the younger guys. And there you might really tend to biopsy then. Still, if you um, recommend active surveillance, you can recommend, you also can prevent over-treatment in those people, in the younger ones. So in the really younger ones, I would a little bit be cautious in spite of these um, very, very valid results in the middle-aged population. Peter, last question on this. Have we not been doing MRIs in most of our patients anyway? Is this, is this just confirming what we knew already? Or is this actually a change for most doctors? It is a change because we used MRI for the classical diagnostics with elevated PSA, but we actually didn't use it in healthy people. And um, there's, a, there's a very intriguing trial from Toronto. Um, they randomized PSA versus um, MRI and found that the initial MRI was more predicted than the PSA value. So we have to work on this as well. So in the screening setting, this is really um, um, game changing. Um, in the diagnostics, we all know that MRI can contribute to a better diagnosis. And Peter, does that mean ultimately we're going to have to build more MRI scans? Because we can't be yeah. we, we can't be MRIing all the entire male population with the current resource we have, can we? My view is a very provocative on, on, on this. The, the diagnosis of prostate cancer is never an emergency. So I think it's better to have a specialized um, diagnostic center that um, can reliably perform an MRI. Because the quality of MRI is crucial. And uh, I, I would rather travel to an MRI than building more MRI um, institutions. And one last question. I mean, around the world, how, how available is MRI? Can 60% of men get it around the world, 80%, 90% I think if they want to? Yeah, this still is a problem. The availability certainly is uh, less than we would wish to. 
However, if this really can contribute um, to diminish overdiagnosis and overtreatment, it's with all modern diagnostic things, they will um, be readily available in the next five years because this really is game changing. Yeah. So Peter, let's move on to your second talk. I agree that's a game changing topic. Brian, would you agree? I agree. Yeah, so you scored two <laughs> points already, um, Peter. Let's, let's, let's move on to the next topic and see how you get on with that one. Germany is not very good in scoring, you know. <laughs> you know, historically, you've been pretty good, to be honest. I, I would swap any day of the week. <laughs> so, um, Peter, what else? What's another EAU topic um, that we can cover? Yeah, it's not only an EAU topic. It was published at ASCO. I think we have to talk about lutetium PSMA as the, yeah. as the new, well, I would say personalized or at least much better um, directed treatment for patients with metastatic gestation resistant prostate cancer. Um, two trials, a ter therapy trial from Australia, and now the randomized uh, vision trial has shown that it's superior to carbacetaxel, but uh, I think this is really um, um, beneficial for, for patients. If you see the curves, um, I, would, I would say this is a completely different approach to this type of cancer. And um, it, in this end-stage disease, it helps um, if, if a treatment is not more toxic than the previous ones. So I would also rate this um, as game-changing because it's a first, well, event that um, needs to be discussed. It was first at ASCO and second at EAU with some additional remarks and comparisons of both trials. But we thought it's valid to, to bring this message also to the urology um, community. And what, what additionally was presented at EAU? We've, we've gone over the ASCO data with Mike Morris and heard some other opinions about the control arm, but what, what, was, what else was presented at EAU about the lutetium uh, vision trial? Yes, we, we had the direct comparison to the therapy trial, and uh, we discussed a lot about the initial doses of uh, lutetium PS. It was started in Australia with 8.5 gigabecquerels and then downside per cycle. Um, it's important, I think, that you have this SPECT uh, guidance, and this was actually not performed in vision. So um, I thought these additional details on performing this treatment, um, they were very interesting because we, we are talking about a standard treatment and we really have to know uh, what is the exact dosage um, to prevent um, side effects. And I also asked the question, we have up to 60% of dry mouth initiated or induced by by lutetium PSMA, this, even if it is only one, one or two um, um, toxicity, I've seen such patients because we perform this, um, um, this treatments uh, since several years. And I've seen a lot of patients having this, and this is um, um, kind of a toxicity which I would not neglect. And uh, we need to improve on this uh, when we use it as a standard treatment. So these things were discussed in addition, obviously, to the main results. And do, do you think we know the right dose yet, or is it will it be personalized per patient? I think if you have uh, the activity controlled by SPECT imaging, um, you can really downsize um, the dosage you need and uh -huh. also downsizing the, the toxicity. Um, this needs a specialized nuclear medicine department um, with both um, um, measurement possibilities, and uh, I think then you can individualize the dosage. Peter, what do you think about the biomarker? They're using a a, um, a, uh, um, a biomarker with a with an imaging scan uh, to select patients. About seventy or eighty percent of patients are positive. Do you think that's uh, that's going to stand the test of time? 
No, I think um, the easiest way to perform this treatment will survive. And um, I think um, if you have identified the metastasis by PSMA, you don't need FDG or other um, 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 parameters to, to, to guide your treatment decision. And um, I think it's only um, wise to, to get control on the exact um, per person dosage. Um, and my last question on that, there was a lot of criticism, or not a lot, it was a modest amount of criticism on the control arm, not allowing capazitaxel or radium-223. What's your take on that? Well, you know, in, in these um, end-stage disease, several of them had two or three uh, treatments before. I, I wouldn't discuss so much on the control arm. Um, I think it was um, practical to use capacitaxel um, in, this, in this regard, but we all know uh, also capacitaxel has a, um, um, only a limited value in, in population. And I was convinced that, that the radiographic progression-free survival was really extended by, by lutetium. And if this holds true in larger series, um, this will help patients a lot. Peter, because you've done so well on the first two topics, I'm tempted, <laughs> I'm tempted to invite you for a third topic as well. Brian, what's your take on that? <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, so, Peter, what would you like to choose? What's your next big issue? Well, um, perhaps we should talk about um, precision medicine, Johan de Bono's talk, BRCA. I think this is also important because the genetic testing is on a big debate and we'll have a plenary session next year. I'm just um, thinking about uh, who's going to talk next year. Um, on hereditary disease and prostate cancer and other diseases, and what is the real value of genetic testing before? I know in the US, uh, you're much further than we are in uh, recommending genetic testing um, in the initial setting, but also in the metastatic setting. Metastatic, I think, is not crucial. I think this is clear that um, you need biomarkers for treatment. But in the initial diagnosis, um, there's still a lot of, lot of debate, I think, um, on whether to use um, genetic screens or not in the initial diagnosis. And this would be my third topic. Peter, do you want to just talk in broad terms about this genetic screening bit and what and what you uh, are and why you think this area is controversial? Yeah, the problem is uh, it starts with germline testing. I think if you only look at prosomatic mutations, have a polygenic risk score or something like that, that's fine. Um, but if you're going to investigate germline, um, then you put patients in a risk group and you really don't know what exactly is the risk. And um, patients will be afraid. They, you don't know what, what is the outcome of this message. Um, if, if a patient comes for the diagnosis of prostate cancer and hopes that he has not cancer, then you, you show him, well, at the moment you don't have cancer, but um, you have a whatever point risk to, um, to develop it. Um, I think the psychology of, of uh, giving this message um, is not completely understood. And we have to be very cautious not to put patients into a high-risk group when we don't know exactly what the high-risk group means. And which germline mutations are you talking about? And is anyone routinely doing this? I Hopefully, no one is doing it on a routine basis at the moment. It's certainly BRCA2, but I'm also talking... Um, about germline mutations in Hox genes, for example. Um, so this is a very crucial thing. We know that they, they, they are there. It happens, and uh, the patients have those germline mutations. But uh, it's completely unclear how they um, collaborate with the other risk factors. 
and um, whether it's really necessary to tell the patient that he is in high risk. Um, this needs will lead to a lot of overdiagnosis in the hereditary population. Your uncle is positive with prostate cancer, then you get this constantly with the urologist biopsying your prostate. I don't think that that is the way we need. So what what is the what do you think the current recommendation should be then around genetic testing? What are what are the risk factors that would lead you to recommend genetic testing for a, a man? I would be very strict, um, and you need to know the difference between familiar and heritage hereditary risk factors. So I think more than three relatives, um, first grade relatives in in your community, having had prostate cancer at young ages, I think those guys I would recommend testing. Um, because this could also um, diminish the rate of overdiagnosis. If you then do an MRI, do all the tests, do whatever uh, 4K score or whatever, and, and then you have a baseline assessment and you see, well, the risk is not as high, um, then these patients that are usually very afraid of getting prostate cancer can be a little bit um, armed down. So there are also this um, positive way of genetic testing, but this demands that you really select a very high risk group from the beginning on. How accurate is the data we currently have and what additional data do we need to collect before we can put this into routine practice? I think the data, the, basis of the database at the moment is not very good. Um, we have this nature genetics paper that was coming out from Conti this year um, showing that you can really have a very, very high risk of prostate cancer, adding some of those risk factors. But it, still, I think we need to have this in prospective longitudinal trials in Germany, we have set up this for breast cancer, breast cancer um, clinics, um, and this is all around the world, but we don't have this in prostate cancer. So I'm just applying a grant for a grant to establish a clinics for prostate cancer um, with fami familiarity um, or hereditary disease in, in its history and background. And uh, I would offer this uh, to those guys and then um, see on the longitudinal basis in a few years how valid uh, this testing will be in the single um, single person. So I think we need more data on a prospective way, longitudinal investigations. I don't think it's enough to have just a screenshot on the available published data. Peter, is it possible in the medium term we're going to end up with patients uh, or patients individuals who are not yet patients having regular MRI scanning and having germline tests for prostate cancer risk? That would be my idea, to have several risk groups. A low-risk group where we can say, well, come, come back in five years, for example. Um, you're, in spite of having uh, this history um, of familial um, prostate cancer, you're not on a risk uh, to develop an aggressive disease in the next five years. This will hopefully be a large group. And then we'll have a high-risk group that probably has to show up every year. And does, can MRI be incorporated into that? In, in, you know, how would you incorporate MRI into that risk assessment? Obviously, or Obviously, yes, but uh, with the drawbacks of MRIs in the very young. So we, we, have, we, we didn't publish those data, but in ProBase, we have performed MRIs in all 45-year-olds, and we are really um, have trouble to identify the cancers. So um, in this special population, which is exactly the same population I would uh, wish to be in the um, prostate prevention clinic for familial disease, um, we probably cannot only rely on MRI. Peter, this is super exciting. You've scored on the third topic. You've also scored two <laughs> points, as far as I can see, which is terrific. Many more than six nil, Peter, six nil. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't seen a game hopefully, like that since you played Brazil. 
hopefully the 20 minutes are over now. Because they are. <laughs> it's been a real grilling, Peter. And I, I tell you, it's been fantastic. Um, Brian, any last questions for Peter? No, I think this is great. Thanks. Thanks for the update, Peter. Really appreciate it. Peter, we loved it. We loved it. I'm going to see you soon. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye. Thanks. Take bye. care, Peter. Bye-bye.